Welcome to another episode of Keep the Dream Flowing. I'm your host, Jack Lokensky. This, of course, is a podcast about the Woodstock 1969 Festival. And we are here, and I'm joined by Aaron Shearer. Uh, Scott Parker will be along later, I believe. And Johnny Hudson is missing in action. Um, And Jim Shelley, the Woodstock Whisperer, is no longer a host of this podcast. He decided to do other things. But we are honored to be here with um, former attendee of the Woodstock Festival, moderator and founder of the Flip Flip Me the Peace Sign uh, Facebook group, author, and activist with a very special cause, and we'll talk about it during the interview, Pat Colucci. Hello. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, I really appreciate this opportunity to speak to your audience and my friends, uh, many of them out there, I'm sure, would yeah. would talk veterans like myself. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's weird. We have... For people who we have an audience of at least 10,000 people, because we get 10,000 unique downloads, at least on Spotify, but we're also on Apple, we're also on Google and Audible and wherever podcasts can be streamed. So it's hard to judge our audience exactly. But a lot of people who attended the festival don't know what a podcast is. And I have to show them one person at a time how to listen to this. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm not too great at podcasts myself. I've learned a few recently, but it's not that bad. It's a great opportunity, great vehicle, though, to speak with people. And it's an on-demand radio show, so you can listen to it whenever you want, not when we want you to listen to it. Terrific. Anyway, so how'd you get to Woodstock, Pat? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's uh, that's quite a story, I think. Um I, uh, I guess I should go back in time a little bit to get there. Okay. Uh, it's, it's been 53 years, I guess. Yeah. Uh, 50, almost 54. <laughs> I started out in a very magical place, Sleepy Hollow, New York. Uh, that's where I was born in 1949. So by the time Woodstock uh, came what around, was, it was 20 was, years was old. It, was it... Uh, Sleepy Hollow or North Tarrytown at that time? At that time, it was uh, North Tarrytown. I actually lived in a little hamlet that bordered that area called East Irvington. Okay. And I, I live across the river. I'm in Rockland. Oh, I, so lived, there. I, lived, I, I lived in New City for a while. Okay, I'm, one ta- I'm in Pomona. I'm one town over. I know it. Well, technically Mount Ivy, but Mount Ivy. Nobody, nobody calls it that. Your mail won't get delivered there. <laughs> well, I was, uh, I was on one of the uh, subsistence farms, one of the last farms that uh, was uh, operational in Westchester County, only 20 miles north of New York City. So I had a unique uh, upbringing, uh, had some cows, pigs, chickens, that kind of thing. Uh, I'm living now in Pennsylvania, and that's not on uncommon where I am now in Bucks County. But back then, that was, uh, you know, I had uh, suburbia all around me. So we were a little <laughs> pocket in time. Uh, as a kid, I was, uh, I guess you, you could say, uh, introverted, uh, on the farm a lot, had autistic tendencies. I was the oldest of eight children, you know. Wow. And, uh, 
Italian family. <laughs> but uh, to be honest, the world outside terrified me. I, I saw it uh, as, as a broken world. Uh, but I decided at a very early age, at about 12 years old, I was going to fix it somehow. And that's when I began a, an intensive study for the priesthood. I thought that was the way in. And uh, for years, from 12 on, I studied philosophy, Greek, uh, Latin, religion, and got as well involved as I could to develop the tools I thought I would need. Um, and it was a very unique time in America while this was going on. Uh, we were World War II babies, our generation. Right. Uh, there was a lot of prosperity all around us. Um, but there was also a lot of turmoil and chaos beginning to enter uh, our existence. Uh, you know, there were uh, civil rights issues uh, that had come up. Even though the uh, post-World War II uh, veterans were able to buy houses and get jobs and buy whatever they wanted, it wasn't fair for everyone. So what happened was there was a lot of uh, civil unrest. There were cities actually burning. There were right. people getting hosed in the street. There were right. uh, riots. There were uh, there was a Vietnam War going on. There were people coming home in body bags. And as a young person back then, it was very scary. Uh, yeah. Well, not only did you have the Vietnam War, you also had the Cold War. As you said, you had civil rights issues. Women's rights were non-existent at the time. That's correct. And uh, it, it, it's funny. I talk to people. Sorry to interrupt, but. I talk to people now and they say, well, you know, the world is crap now. It's like, oh, you know, there's so much division. There's this, there's that. And I'm like, yeah, when I was a kid, we had the same thing, which is what you described. And, right. you know, and a hundred years before that, they had a civil war where half the nation was physically fighting with each other, you know, with the other half. So you're right. There's, to, always, to there, there's always been times of trouble, but continue. there always has. There always has. I remember even as a kid, Sputnik going over, <laughs> going over yeah. him. Man, that scared the shit out of all us Americans at the time. Uh, and uh, it was a time of angst. It was a time of uncertainty. But like you rightly mentioned, this has uh, recurred many times over in American history. There was a number of us uh, that um, reacted and wanted to somehow make America better. Not great again, God forbid. But better, <laughs> but, better but better in, in most, any way we most, can. Most most of the hosts of this podcast would agree with you. Yeah, as a young person, um, you know, the only issue I had was uh, as we started watching uh, our friends come home in body bags on color TV every yeah. night at six o'clock, we 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 fell into the mindset that. You know, this is a pretty scary thing. Maybe, you know, there's no way to know if you're going to be alive the next day. That's how scary it got uh, with all the possibilities out there. But I locked myself away. I retreated. I went into the rectory uh, in Irvington, New York, uh, okay. where I could study away from my eight siblings. Uh, we're a little quiet and uh, answered the phones for the priests and uh, did services and so forth. And... Actually, that was a good move in a sense that one day there was a knock on the door. And the knock on the door was from this uh, tall, handsome-looking guy with long hair. His name was Frank. He turned out to be a hippie 
uh, before it was fashionable. He was into right. nature. He uh, had dogs that he ran through the Rockefeller estate, which was nearby. And uh, he was into eating well and so forth and so on. I didn't know who he was when he walked in, but he walked right past me, walked all through the rectory looking for the priest. I said, what are you doing, man? Why are you walking through here? And he said, I'm looking for the priest. I got to do some work on the uh, rectory today. Uh, he says, what are you doing? And he looked at me and he saw that I had my books spread out on the desk in the front parlor and uh, all kinds of writing and notes. And he says, what's all that stuff? And I said, well, that's uh, actually a report I'm doing. Your name is Frank. Uh, nice to meet you. But Frank, do you realize how organized they were back then in the Middle Ages? They had a whole hierarchy. They had kings and serfs and peasants and everybody knew their place and society was great. And he gave me a look like I'll never forget. And he says, are you out of your fucking mind? I said, well, Frank, what do you mean? He says, do you know what's going on in the world today? People getting killed, fires in the streets, uh, society falling apart, and you're worried about the Middle Ages? Man, I got to get you out of here. And he looked at me, and there I stood in front of him. I had high water pants, pointed black <laughs> lace-up shoes, white socks, a pocket protector in my, in my pocket, a real nerd. And he said, Pat, he said, I'm going to bring you into the world. And I said, I, I don't know what you're talking about, Frank. So a week later, he invited me to go with him to Tarrytown, New York, which was sort of a happening place back then uh, to be, to Benedict Avenue, a uh, long stretch uh, North Tarrytown where guys were riding hot rods up and down the street. Uh, you could hear uh, Bob Dylan music coming out of the uh, windows of the Van Tassel apartment house. And it was a happening place. And I was just amazed. And <clears throat> he started to introduce me to the counterculture and uh, his, some of his friends and so forth and so on. I was real skeptical, but I sort of met him and, and got to know him. And we spent a lot of time together. We went to Rockefeller's estate together where we were known. And they let us run through the woods with the dogs. And Frank and I developed a relationship uh, where we would talk about the nature of reality and philosophical things of that nature for hours. And we were both trying to attempt to relate to society. We were both on total opposite ends. Uh, I was coming in through a religious uh, viewpoint. He was coming in through a humanitarian uh, viewpoint. And, you know, it was great because we had in between us everything that was going on and we were trading ideas. Uh, we were like two ragtag philosophers uh, trying to trying to make the world better. Okay. Uh, this went on for, for a while, a year or two. And then I had to enter the seminary proper down on 555 Weston Avenue. And I committed and I finally went in after uh, four years of private Catholic school and all the background that I had. And I was fully committed and I'm down in Manhattan in the same seminary that Martin Scorsese went to a few years prior for one year till he dropped out. And uh, I was there for a year. And then the second year, they joined the diocese of Long Island and uh, New York and Queens and made one super uh, seminary out in Douglaston, Queens. And that's where I ended up in the second year. But 
when I was down in the in Manhattan for the first year around Easter, I got a note from Frank saying that he was up in the town of Woodstock, uh, which I had never heard of. And he told me a little bit about it. And he was hiking through Needs Mountain, just below Overlook Mountain, outside mm-hmm. the town of Woodstock. And right. he told me the story about coming across an old wooden church, a rustic uh, that was up there in the woods. And it was a week before Christmas. And uh, he was freezing. So he goes into the church. And uh, he's there with his German shepherd. And he's uh, shaking. And this old guy comes in. He's about 80 years old. He's got a flannel shirt, uh, looks like a caretaker. And uh, Frank says to him, hey, what is this place? And he says, the old guy says, it's a church of Christ on a mountain. A hermit bishop runs it. Uh, he's up here, a recluse by himself, but he's a smart guy. And uh, he came up here 40 years ago, and he stays to himself, something to that effect. And my buddy goes, oh, he must be a nut. He must be crazy. And the old guy goes, well, he's a little eccentric. And he leaves. 20 minutes later, the door opens, and in comes the same guy. But this time, he's got clerical garb on, big gold cross. He is Father Francis, the bishop of that church. Uh, What's unique about this is that Father Francis later on became the hippie priest of Woodstock, the town of Woodstock, at age 82. Frank had convinced him to come down off the mountain meet his hippie friends, and he started a new ministry and became pretty famous and uh, or popular, I should say, not famous. And there were uh, uh, meetings at the church, uh, services that were, you know, open to everybody. It didn't matter if you were Jewish or Protestant or Catholic. It, uh, so not non-denominational. That's the word I was looking for. And they were, they were very cool. So, Frank says, Father Francis wants to talk to you. Get up here somehow. So I hitchhiked from New York City with five bucks in my pocket, and I made it all the way up to 150 miles to this mountain. And I met the bishop, very stately-looking guy, had an English accent, actually, tall, slender. And his church was up uh, on that mountain. Uh, I got there in the middle of the night. There was a full moon. The church was silhouetted there with him standing on the on the front stairs, it was really uh, a sight to see. I went inside. Right. I went inside, and uh, Frank, who had no interest in religion, went in the other room. And Father Francis wanted to learn about the changes in Vatican II. And since I was in the seminary, I was the right guy for him to talk to. But the amazing thing was, he had a hassock uh, between us with a tray of tea cups and a decanter and so forth. And a couple of candles lit, and it was pretty gloomy in the rectory part of this tiny church. And uh, we talked for an hour or so, and then he picked up the tray, and then he picked up the top of the hassock, and inside the hassock were radio dials, which he turned, and all of a sudden, the bells all through the mountain began to ring. It was... What, excuse me, what... I'm Jewish. What's a hassock? Oh, well, everybody knows that thing you put, an ottoman, an ottoman, a thing you put your feet on. Okay, okay, an ottoman, okay. Yeah, just a typical ottoman he had there. He, he used okay. it as a table. But it okay, had, I, thought, I thought it was, the way you were talking, I thought it was uh, Christian specific. 
No, not not okay. really. <laughs> it's funny because he wasn't he wasn't that Christian specific himself all the time. When I met him, since he was a bishop, I I addressed him, my, uh, your excellent your excellency, glad to meet you. He says, just call me Father Francis. That's what everybody calls me. So he's a cool guy. And uh, but when it was surrealistic when those bells began to ring. So that was my first introduction to Woodstock, the town. It was a full year before Woodstock. Now, okay, I go so back. This is, 19, so this is 1968. Yeah. So I go back to the seminary for my second year. And the world, the world is getting crazier. Uh, I'm starting to feel angst uh, about the fact that I didn't think the institutions, the church or other institutions, government, like a lot of people my age, were any longer suitable to address what was going on. So this caused me a lot of pain. And the fact that uh, I was starting to questioning my vocation and uh, started drinking a little bit to, to ease the pain. And then next thing I know, it's summer of 1968, and I'm sitting back on Beekman Avenue. I uh, got my motorcycle, had a Honda motorcycle on the curb. And I'm sitting there, and I uh, start to pray to God, what do I do? I'm trying to save the world. I can't even save myself. I'm falling drunk backwards in the church doorways in the middle of the night, and they're locked. What am I going to do, Lord? Do I continue? Uh, do I drop out? Do I go back to school? I just didn't know what to do. Right after right. that prayer, I pick up a newspaper that was on that park bench, and it said there was a peace gathering upstate New York. And it was like an answer to what I had just prayed. And it mentioned Woodstock, but it mentioned Bethel, you know, the fact that it was there. And uh, the Woodstock connection rang, rang a bell. And then a girl that I had once seen in town once or twice walked by seeing me reading the paper. And she says, oh, I see you're looking at the Woodstock thing. We're all going up there. Friday, a caravan of cars, and you're welcome to go, but we have no room for you. If you want to ride that motorcycle up, you can follow us. So off we went that Friday, met at the Tappan Zee Bridge, and we're going up the New York Thruway. And I just noticed that there's hundreds and hundreds of cars with young people going in the same direction. People starting to smile and give peace signs and stuff like that. And I followed a Tarrytown contingent all the way up to 17B. And in 17B, the traffic stops. It's Friday, early Friday. And uh, that same girl that was in the car in front of me about an hour later gets out and walks up and says, hey, you got a motorcycle. What, why are we sitting here? Uh, why don't you throw your gear in my girlfriend's trunk? I never got it back, by the way. <laughs> and we'll, and we'll, I had a week's worth of clothes. I had food. I was going to stay there until I determined what I was going to do with the rest of my life. That was my mission. If is, this, wait week, a minute, is this 68 or is this 69? 69. Okay. Yeah. I went to Woodstock to figure out, thinking that's what God wanted me to do so I could figure out what direction my life. So, so, this this is, so you're going to the concert and this girl tells you to drop her stuff, your stuff in your friend's, tr in her friend's trunk. And then she gets on the bike with you. Yes, she has no shoes on, and we drive up the 10 miles to the entrance, and we're waiting for a girlfriend for three hours. She doesn't make it. 
I find out she's got 60 bucks in her pocket, which was a fortune. I had only two bucks. Uh, and uh, I said, why don't we go in together? So I bought a bottle of Boone's Farm wine, and we decided to go into the concert together. I, remi- I remember with her on the back, I'm driving up to the crest of the hill, and I'm looking down, and there's 400,000 kids in front of me. Richie Havens is on stage singing Freedom. The, the sun was coming through the clouds. And I looked around and I said, oh, my God, 400,000 unsupervised kids my age, this pretty girl, a motorcycle, a bottle of wine. I looked up to heaven and said, Lord, it doesn't get better than this. And so that became became our uh, start of our three-day together in the mud at Woodstock. And let me tell you something. When you sit together with, with someone in the mud for three days, you really get to know them. <laughs> oh, abso- absolutely. I mean, ask anybody who's ever been in a foxhole. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So um, the thing was that uh, Woodstock totally, when, when we looked around and we started walking around and we felt the vibe of the place, I was overcome with exuberance. I tasted a tremendous euphoria uh, of freedom that I'd never had in my life before because I was always under constraints and trying to, you know, do things under regulation and so forth and so on. And here I was. The most amazing thing, though, was that there were 400 or half a million people, who knows how many, who felt the same way I did about peace and love and so forth. And I said, wow, you know, I I have something in common with these people. I was always a loner up to that point. But I started to feel comfortable with this group of people. And, uh, and there's, a, there's a misconception. A lot of people think it was a half million drugged out hippies up there. Well, Absolutely there was, not. No, there were some, of course. But it was a beautiful mosaic of all young people of the time. You had all types of people. You had educated people. You had dropouts. You had philosophers. You had uh, atheists. You had athletes and you had nerds you had everybody but it was mo- mo- most of the people there were from the new york city area although not exclusively yes and they were and they were on they summer were break for, and there were college kids and yeah. some of them were some of the, a lot of them worked for the summer yes and that's why people bugged out on sunday because they had to get to a job on monday that's absolutely which is, right and they were just Ordinary kids. And, yeah, you know what's funny? And one before yeah, I let you continue, one one yeah. last thing. Uh the four the Woodstock whispered, Jim Shelley, who used to be a host on this podcast. I know Jim. You see, I know you know Jim. Um, but our audience doesn't. Right. Um used to say he thought he was the only one. And when he went to Woodstock, yes. he found so many people like him, and he realized, "Oh my God, there—excuse <laughs> me, there's a number of us. Yes, there's a half, a, half a million of us. Yeah, I felt the same way. And you know, the funny thing—if you look at the pictures of the kids that were there, we all looked the same. <laughs> we all had the same haircut. We all had the striped shirts." We yep. all we all looked pretty much homogeneous in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's 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 we we had um, Pete Connors on the on the show uh, 
a while ago. Pete Connors is a Grateful Dead author. We were talking to him about the Grateful Dead. Yeah. And it's a similar type of thing. He found a community where he belonged to. And as a someone who is only four at the time of Woodstock and obviously not there, I, I definitely feel at home at Bethel Woods and as part of the Woodstock community, I definitely feel home. And it's, you know, my people. Yeah, you continue. remind me a lot of uh, Billy Lucano, who is a friend of mine, who helped right. me on, on a project. He's about your age, about 10 years younger than me, I guess, and um, somewhere around there. And he feels the same way. Yet that strata of people really have identified with Woodstock and embraced it and, 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 the, and are responsible for keeping the spirit alive. Right. Because my generation dropped the ball. And when I, was I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. I think you guys did a lot, and but there was there's kind of like, but after you guys okay. got up and you know got established, and after college, you know you're trying to earn a living, and some people kept trying to change the world, but a lot of people found other people other things to do, and there hasn't been really. There's been sub-movements here and there, but not a lot of movements. Every once in a while, a movement pops up, but there's nothing, there hasn't been anything as unifying as the Vietnam War was. That's correct. And um, I want to get back to that subject a little later in the conversation and stay with, uh, with, the, with the initial impressions I had of Woodstock. Please. So I had this, had this tremendous euphoria. And uh, things were going well, enjoying the music. And then there were the weather turned at different times. And I began to experience almost every emotion when I was there. Happiness, joy, I was afraid, uh, hungry. Uh, everything went through my head. And the reason for that was that um, it was... It was <laughs> So unexpected that we didn't know what was coming next. But after a while, we settled down and everybody began to enjoy it. But the girl that I was with, Maria, uh, the first day walking around in the mud, and that wasn't mud, by the way, just mud. That was 100 years of cow manure that came to the surface, about ankle deep. And yeah, they, they, they kept farm animals there. You know, it was a farm. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> See, I can remember the smell. The smell was a unique smell. It was like a combination of uh, hashish and cow poop mixed together. And, yeah, I, and yeah. I, can, I can still smell it. Uh, yeah. Cow Maria, chips are a lot different than potato chips. Right. And remember, Maria, Maria didn't have shoes when she got on the motorcycle. So she stepped on something under the mud the first day and cut her foot and had to go to the medical tent. Oh, yeah, so that, that that's yeah. the most common injury at Woodstock, uh, cutting feet. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty bad. Those she had pull little... tabs, Pat. Yeah, those that? pull tabs. Yeah, it was probably a pull tab. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. you couldn't see it because you know the mud was thick. But right. uh, she she got stitches and she hobbled around. I don't know if she found shoes or not the rest of the three days, but didn't matter. She was a good spirit about it, yeah. and. Uh, I did see something else that a lot of people um, don't mention. Uh, I think it was the second day 
about 30 yards from me on a slope of the hill, I see the tractor coming down the hill. And it was a tractor to clear up garbage. And okay. I watched as the wheel went over what looked like a mound of mud. And at that point, I, I saw a young arm come flying out of that mass of mud. And I witnessed the tractor running over a person. It totally okay. freaked me out. Yeah. I said to myself. Raymond Isaac. Yeah. That's yeah. Enough. And I said to myself, holy shit, that could have been me. That poor you guy. You saw that, Pat? You I saw, saw that? it. I saw that. I said that could have been any one of us. And I ran to the medical tent to get a doctor. And I'll never forget the doctor because he was a little reticent in the beginning. I said, Doc, you know, a bunch of people ran to the guy to try to help him. I went for medical help. I got to a medical tent. I got in there. I met a young guy, said he was a doctor. I said, Doc, you got to come. The guy just got ran over. And he says, I can't. I said, what do you mean you can't? Well, I got everything going on. I got ODs. I got uh, people having babies. I said, you don't go out there and help this guy. I'm going to knock you out right now. (laughs) (laughs) I was pissed. I was mad. And I couldn't really blame him because he didn't know what I was talking about. But then a helicopter came down and picked this poor kid up, put him in a stretcher, lifted him out of there. And it was just like watching a scene from the six o'clock news of a soldier being lifted out of Vietnam. I mean, that's the impression I got. And this poor guy is only a footnote at this point. Uh, Not not even. And, you know, I was thinking about having his, trying to contact his relatives to have him on the podcast because Ray Mizak was a good guy. He mowed lawns to save up for, for, for his tickets to Woodstock. And he was loved by every, and he was loved by everybody who knew him. And he's, Oh, and he's mostly forgotten about, and he should. Yeah, people people thought he was drugged out, and that's why he got run over. That's no, he he just he just was he just slept underneath a uh, he just took shelter underneath a truck to get like we all did, whatever. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. and and he fell asleep, and the guy who was driving the truck didn't check. Wrong place, wrong time. That's what it was. It was an it was an accident. If you guys can get him on, get his relatives on the show, I think we owe him that. Uh, I, I I had those thoughts, but I was vetoed. But we'll see what we'll see what happens. No, in the you're future. not. You're not vetoed. We'll do it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anyway, it's your show. <laughs> you're you not. You're officially not vetoed, Jack. Be, before I continue, for those yep. tuning in, we're talking to Pat Colucci, an attendee of Woodstock, and he's recounting his story. Please continue, Pat. Thank you. <laughs> so uh, I walk around, uh, getting into the vibe. Uh, everything's going great. Then I remember the first time the rain hit. Now, who remembers what day or what hour? But I know a torrential rain came through. And I think what happened is there were spurts of those rains. There was one big one, but there were also intermittent showers that came. And that rain came down like bullets. It was incredible. It was cold. And, yeah. and it hurt. And yeah. uh, so there was no shelter. You're sitting there. Did it really? Yeah. Like it actually hurt? It wow. hurt. It was like bullets. Well, was that the rain on Friday night or the rain on Sunday? I think that was Friday night, the first rain. Okay. Yeah, that would have been the first rain. Yeah. So, so you know, here I am with this girl. We have no outer clothing other than a shirt and jeans. And all my gear is in the car, her girlfriend's car. 
and they're probably under my tent and they're probably eating my food and putting on my warm clothes because I had a week's worth. And, I, and here I am saying, man. And so we did find people, though, that had tents. So there were a few tents around. And if you asked politely, they'd let you go in for a half hour, sleep, and then come out. And then another pair would go in or how many they could fit. So that's what Maria and I did. We got that once or twice. But we uh, more or less fell asleep in each other's arms and just, and just you know, <laughs> and, endured it. But uh, uh, as they tell you in survival books, body heat will keep you warm. Yes. Yeah. She had good heat. She had good heat. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm see, sure she see did. Jack, that's what you need to do, Jack. You just need to, you know, you need to go to a festival and get a girl to, you know, get on the back of the motorcycle. And then, you know, you're you're all set. Yeah, I, I I need to get a motorcycle before I get the girl. But the but the best thing the best thing that Maria did and her greatest quality was the fact that she listened to me. She listened to my pitiful story. She listened to my dilemma of how I didn't know how to how to. I was as beat up psychologically as that battered motorcycle I rode up on, and she knew it. Really? And, and, yeah. And she was sympathetic. Yeah, I was uh, thinking of leaving the priesthood. I, I thought that, uh, you know, my life mission was derailed. Uh, I had a, a lot of uh, misgivings about what I was going to do. And well, she spending a weekend with a girl in almost no clothing <laughs> will, will kind of uh, get you out of the priesthood real fast. Well, it made me uh, it made me it, consider different options. Yeah. I can imagine yeah. <laughs> different circumstances, but sure. Yeah. So, so anyway, um, she listened and so forth and so on. And uh, I noticed at times that, uh, you know, uh, I separated from her. Once I rode into town on the bike looking for water, couldn't find any. People were selling water for five, like two or three dollars a bottle, which was a fortune back then. So I bought a couple of six packs, threw them on the tank of the bike. And rode back through the crowd, <laughs> threw most of them into the crowd. <laughs> and it is partially it. water, Pat. It's yeah. partially water. <laughs> it, it was fun. It was fun. I had fun doing that. But yeah. um, food became scarce and we became hungry. And uh, I, they, they say there was no violence at Woodstock. And I didn't see any for three days. But I did see something that might have been borderline. We're all hungry. There were a few... Um, stands that were set up around by college fraternities and there were right. kids selling hamburgers and hot dogs and stuff and everybody was starving and we get and i remember walking up and you know they're selling this stuff and i heard one of the guys next to me say we're liberating this stand and the kid behind <laughs> the, the kid says what do yeah. you mean you we got our fraternity money in this thing where you know this is how we're going to pay for whatever and the guy says, man, the people out here, you, we're all hungry. You know, we're starving. This is a, this is a you know, a catastrophe. you got to help out. And the guy acquiesced. He didn't at first. And then I just noticed all the food being thrown out over our heads. It was fantastic. And then the planes came in and they started dropping stuff. And uh, I made my way to, uh, Maria and I made our way to the kitchen, the uh, hog farm. Okay. And, uh, yeah. Went, made our way through the woods, 
I sort of found it because there were no toilets. Or, I mean, there were porta sands, but you couldn't get in for hours. The lines right. were so long and they smelled so terrible <laughs> that uh, you didn't want to go. So we found the woods and uh, we did our business there and it was fine. You know, there were, <laughs> it worked. But we also found the hog farm. And I, and I got to thank um, Lisa Law. Uh, for yep. orchestrating that. Uh, she saved our lives. And I, I've commended her on the internet several times. And actually, we were a, in a uh, CNBC did a documentary where I was in it with her and Duke Dev, uh, Devlin. And, but I have it on I have it on DVD, Pat. <laughs> yeah. And, George and Schmidt was, was in that too, right? I know George. He wasn't in that particular documentary. Okay. He was in yeah. a couple others. But okay. he's a great he's a great guy. I love him. He is. We all uh, so so anyway, uh, we had uh, what was a mixture of uh, I don't know what they called it, but it was all kinds of good stuff to eat in a paper cup, and that saved us. And uh, went up there a few times, and um, you know. Uh, so thank you, thank you, Lisa. Really, again from the bottom <laughs> of my heart, and I'm here station. today. Stan Goldstein, who reached out to the hog farm to get him up there. Oh, okay. And so, you know, Lisa was uh, tight with Wavy Gravy in the hog yeah. farm. I remember yeah. Wavy. I remember saying him uh, what he was considering was breakfast in bed for 400000 yes. I, I heard that. Good morning. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400000 Now, it's not going to be steak and eggs or anything, but it's going to be good food, and we're going to get it to you. It's not just a hog farm, either. It's like the Ojai Mountain family and the pranksters and everybody else that has volunteered and put in their time into the free kitchens. In fact, it's everybody. We're all feeding each other. We must be in heaven, man! There is always a little bit of heaven in a disaster area. So if you want to make it back to your campsites, we'll try and get the food to you. Or if you're staying here, we'll try and get the food to you. Now, there's a guy up there, some hamburger guy, that had his stand burned down last night. But he's still got a little stuff left. And for you people that still believe that, you know, capitalism isn't that weird, you might help them out and buy a couple of hamburgers. Okay. Okay, here it comes. Mess call.
Hey, but, hey Pat, how was yeah. the food though from the hog farm? It was Delicious. a cup of like, Muesli. you know, basically granola, right? I think that was the first time that anybody invented granola or, or yeah. Yeah, totally yeah. dude. It was yeah. great. It was fantastic. But anyway, um, there was some drug use. I mean, I got involved a little bit. I sat in a row of people and just everything imaginable kept coming by us, mostly pot and, and hash and that kind of thing. And so one guy would pass you the pipe and another one would be behind it. Yep. And, uh, you know, but, you know, it wasn't the main uh, thing. I mean, that happened. There was some drug use, let's face it. But not to the extent the time, that the... Yeah. Not to the extent that the media was portrayed. I didn't see any heavy, any heavy drugs, you know, heroin or any of that. There's very little yeah. of that. Um, well, and- it, it, it was hard. It's hard to get needles, and pot is a lot easier to carry than a keg. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> <laughs> there was there was also uh, there was also some psychedelics, which um, yeah was a problem for some of us because. Uh, you know, they started to announce, uh, don't take the brown acid after a lot of people dropped acid, whether it was brown or not. And that freaked a lot of people out. I think that made it worse. Uh, well, that's the thing, like, you know, what, what people don't understand about Woodstock, if you, if you listen to the tapes, the multi-track tapes from, uh, the recordings from Woodstock is that brown acid was just one of the acids, Right. That was bad. You know, yeah. they there was, was flat blue acid, there was green acid, you know, and you didn't know it, you know, and and people who have been there have told me, you know, like you didn't know if you were in the dark, you didn't know what tab you took. Yeah, no, no idea. Nope, no. you didn't. Uh, but let's get to a highlight uh of Woodstock. Um I re- I think it was Saturday night, you know. 53 years, I'm not sure, but you can fact check it. Uh, I woke up, it was nighttime. I don't know if it was early in the morning or late at night. Uh, I think it was Saturday. And there was a haze coming off the field. Uh, It was like the evaporation of the rain from hours prior. And all of a sudden, the stage lights up. And I hear the brass instruments, and out comes Sly and the Family Stone. Yeah. Sly with, Sly with his white fringe jacket, and strobe lights start to hit the audience, and it was wild. And they go through their set, and then they get to um, Got to Take You Higher. 500,000 yeah. people are stamping on the ground, working out, raising their hands and peace signs uh, on top of vans all over the place singing the lyrics, repeating the lyrics, and, and we're getting higher, higher, higher. But for me and for, for a lot of people, uh, it was not high in the drug sense. It was a higher state of consciousness. We yes. were getting higher. We were beginning to accept each other for who we were. We were accepting the basic fundamentals of love and peace and music and realizing that there was more to life than what our parents were telling us to do, right. uh, that, that the values that were starting to crystallize. And for the first time in my life, I felt like I joined the Woodstock Nation. I felt that it was born with that song for me and that this was my generation and I'm going to identify it 
and forget the idea of being a clerical priest. I'm going to join the royal priesthood of all these people, and we're going to bring these ideals to the masses. And it was such a catharsis. It was incredible. That particular song. Wow. That whole that whole medley. I mean, oh, if you yeah. listen to it, if you listen to it and watch it today, you can still feel the power of it. Oh, and that's on yeah. and that and that's on film. Being yeah. alive must have yeah. been incredible. And if anybody slept during Sly Stone's set, I'd <laughs> like to meet them because they'd have to be dead in order to be because that that set just came off so powerfully and so I mean, electric and just moved everybody. Everyone would never have slept through it, would you? Aaron? <laughs> <laughs> Every, everyday people, man. Everyday people. They're, they're so yeah. Old. See, that was the thing about our music. Rock and roll's dead today, as far as I'm concerned. We had a message in our music. Music was spiritual in the 60s. It hit your center being. It got right to you. You knew what you felt it. It was electric. The connection between the artist and, and the the listener was something that was just spiritual. That yeah. was music in the 60s. There were issues that we believed in and that they touched like lightning rods with their music. And they were saying things in their early 60s that they couldn't say verbally or they'd be arrested or put in jail or, or worse. But through their totally. music, through their yeah. music, which was so artistic and so well done and arranged that the message got through and slowly got through to the general population also. And yeah. I think that that dissemination of, of those values and needs and wants eventually got through to the uh, major population and eventually brought down the Berlin Wall, in my estimation. I yeah. think it had a lot to do with it. I agree. Totally yeah. agree. Now, yeah. uh, one thing I haven't mentioned is I have a really good friend who I was very fortunate to meet uh, online 15 years ago. We became very good friends. His name is Artie Kornfeld. You know who he is. Yeah, mm -hmm. he's, been on yep. the, he's been on the show. Artie? Yep. Yeah. I've, I've spoken to Artie. I speak to him all, weekly, okay, okay, for the last 15 years. We're good friends, and he's one of the best guys I've ever met. Uh, he was the true, in my estimation, the true spirit of Woodstock. But he said things over the years that really rang true. He said there was no one on that stage, no performer that was any more important than any one individual in the audience. And that was true. Woodstock yep. was a group effort. Okay. It needed the listeners. It needed the performers to work. And we respected each other and we respected what was going on. And we knew we felt in our hearts, it was something we felt it. We knew what was happening there was something that was incredible. It was a confluence of divergent things that could never be replicated, that it was a special moment in time. I guess that's why Time Magazine called it the three most peaceful days in American history or whatever they said. It yeah. was, and you knew it. You felt like you were in a different realm. You were in that higher consciousness during those three days. That brings me to today, in a sense. Um, yes, sir. <laughs> actually, I'd like to go back 
to, first of all, 10 years after Woodstock, 1989. Mm -hmm. That's 20 20 years after Woodstock. Let's make it 1979. Sorry. Okay. Sure. You know, at my age. (laughs) I understand. I I understand. I'm here to keep you honest. I don't remember yesterday, Pat. It's fine. Don't worry about it, man. (laughs) (laughs) 10 years later, 1979. Maria, okay, buys me a brand new Triumph. Yeah. Oh, and I didn't tell you something about uh, the day we left Woodstock. I guess I should mention that. We stayed till Sunday. We stayed till we take and we just I just couldn't take it anymore physically. Uh, you know, the elements being there for all that time that I decided mm-hmm. on the spot, Maria, get ready. We're going home. I had left my motorcycle uh, next to a group of Harley Davidson's uh, that I think the Hells Angels uh, parked. Yeah. And yeah, I knew they my, were there. I knew my bike was safe because every time it stopped raining. I would take a rag and go to that motorcycle and shine every little bit of chrome that was left. And they were getting the kick out of it. They left their, their bikes dirty and filthy. And they, Hey, there's that guy again. <laughs> Watch. Oh, he's cleaning up because that's all I had in the world was that bike, that $2 that were in my pocket and that motorcycle that I bought. Did they all have Harleys, Pat. Oh yeah. They all had Harleys. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Big machines, new, new, new. And I had something that was, beat to hell, had ball tires, the chain hop, the sprocket, the only two bolts held the foot pegs in place where there should have been four. I mean, it was a suicide machine and it got me all the way up there, there. man. So I, <laughs> so I said, Maria, hop on. She gets on the bike and we start riding down this, the 17 B and it starts to rain a little bit and I'm getting a premonition. I'm getting a premonition that I'm going to crash. I visualize Maria's, going through one of the spokes spoke wheels and i'm saying i gotta i can't i can't do this and then an echo in my mind from my roommate from the seminary saying in a conversation that he worked one time in a camp called saint vincent's camp in the catskills and i and that came to my memory and then i pulled off at the first exit went into a little store and said you, I know this is a big place up here, but you ever hear of St. Vincent's? And he says, yeah, it's just down the curb, uh, past the light, make a right, and there's a long driveway, and that's the camp. I said, you got to be kidding. So we drive, I decide, hey, you know, let me go there. So I drive up to the gate, and uh, a nun comes to the front, uh, a mother superior who was running the place. Now, here's, here's the black motorcycle. The Woodstock thing is all over TV. The, the, the media is showing all the disaster aspects. And this black motorcycle pulls up with high handlebars and a scantily clad girl on the back and, and some guy with a, with a beard. And we look like Hell's Angels. And I, I get off the bike and I walk up to the nun and I say, Mother, you're not going to believe this, but I'm a seminarian. <laughs> she freaked out. She looked at me. You gotta be. What's the church coming to? She's thinking. So I said, "No, my my roommate Dave Casella. I think he's a he's one of your guys. Call him." And so here comes Dave. He's a big six foot two two hundred fifty pound pounder. Yeah, he says that's Pat. That's my roommate. <laughs> he's okay. You can let. I said, "Mother, she was 
the girl was up at Woodstock. Things were getting crazy, and I had to get her out of there, which was really true in a way. So it was, yeah, yeah. So she, uh, she, she said, "All right, you can come in, but you're going in separate quarters." I said, "Fine." So I go into the to the uh, to the guys. What do you call the guys that run the place? The uh, friars, the huh? Monks, the friars? No, no, no. The guys that do a camp. They're head of the, in charge of the kids. Counselors. Counselors. There you go. Counselors. Okay. There you go. Yep. I'm with the counselors and they're all watching on a black and white TV. The, the news uh, flashes of Woodstock and what's going on and, you know, hippies mired in the mud and all that. And they're going, you came from Woodstock. Oh, my God. Tell us all about it. You know, and I start to tell them and I said, look, guys, I am so tired. <laughs> I'm going to lay down on that. I'm going to lay down on that big wooden bed you got and just throw as many blankets as you can find. They threw about five or 10 blankets on me and I fell asleep for 12 hours. I wake up that Monday and it's a sunny day, 90 degrees. And Maria gets on the bike and we ride all the way back to Tarrytown. A hundred wow. miles on that dilapidated bike that screamed at 55 miles an hour all the way down the New York Thruway. All right. So, <laughs> oh my it. god that's so awesome Pat. <laughs> now i dropped maria off on the corner and i said maria i had such a great time that was uh, man that was a mind blower you're such a sweet girl uh you're only 17 but man you're you got you're like a woman and i said i want <laughs> i said i want to thank you but i gotta tell you something i've decided i'm going back to the seminary and she gave Did you me really? A, yeah, she gave me a you look. You said that to her? I said it to her. I said, my parents, my my pastor, everybody's been counting on me since I'm 12 years old. I feel like I'm the sacrificial lamb. I gotta, I gotta go, I gotta try it one more time. And she looked at me perplexed, thought I was crazy, which I probably was at that point. And she said, <laughs> she said. All right, Pat, I understand. But before you go, I want you to meet me here in 10 days on this corner. 10 days later, because it was September, or it was getting close to September when school yeah, it was, was the end of August. Yeah, it was the end of August. So 10 days later, I meet Maria on that corner. She's got a little box in her hand. And in her box was this, you can see it on the video here, was this St. Christopher's medal gold medal and on the back of it that was the medal of travelers in the, in the day right okay that's the, the medal that's the medal yes and you know what it says on the back she had it inscribed love always maria august 28th 1969 and I, as you see i'm wearing it to this day it's around my neck so oh, i went back my god pat <laughs> yeah, I, go, I, go, I go i couldn't make this stuff up i go back to the seminary that had now moved from uh, from Manhattan to Douglaston, where they combined three dioceses, a big school and all that. And uh, I really tried. I mean, I really tried. I prayed. I went, you don't know the spiritual hardships. I went, the black knight of the soul, they call it. I went yes. through it. And I saw her a couple times in between. And then 10 months later, we decided and got married. And we are together to this very day. She you has. Know, 
She has. That's why me. your story, Pat, is my favorite story from Woodstock. Thank you know, because I saw it on that. I think it was Dateline NBC. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Remember? No, he yeah. didn't murder her. He's not on Dateline. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't. No, he didn't murder her. But you know, there was a. Yeah, there was an NBC story. Yes, that, well, it was, you know, it was, like it was aligned with Dateline, but they were doing yeah. good shows then. I mean, yeah, right. It wasn't all murder back then. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was just mostly murder. And that and that poor girl has pulled me through so much since then and has put up with so much with me. She's an angel. She's really an angel. However, 10 months, getting back to 10 years after Woodstock, 1979, Maria bought me a brand new Triumph motorcycle for my birthday. And I said, holy shit, Maria, how nice of you. And on the anniversary date, I decide to drive back up to Woodstock. And I'm driving up from Tarrytown. Oh, it could have been Rockland County at that point, New City. And I'm driving up and I'm reliving the whole Woodstock experience in my mind. And all of a sudden, I'm on 17B and I, I'm on Herd Road and I blow right past where, where the field was and I don't recognize it. And I said, what really? the fuck? I said, what happened? Where is yeah, it? Well, because they didn't put a monument up yet. So... What happened was I got back and I figured out where it was. There was a fence up and there were horses running around. And I said, oh, my God, there's nothing here. I expected a brass band, a plaque, something to commemorate, something to me that I thought was just so important. But it seemed like nobody cared. And I couldn't believe I couldn't comprehend it. I went into town and I started talking to the townspeople. And I said, hey, you guys, how come there's no recognition? There's nothing up there. And they, people said to me, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You hippies ruined our town. We want nothing to do with you. Yep. We hate you. We don't want you ever to come back. And I had, I literally had tears in my eyes when I got on my motorcycle and slowly drove the 100 miles back home. I was devastated. I said, yeah. I said, was I crazy? What, you know, and, no. and, you know, I said, there's something wrong with me. Why do I think it's so important where everybody else disparages it? The news media uh, was not, was not paying it attention. Very little uh, positivity anywhere about what happened there. And to me, I knew it meant so much more. So fast forward to 1982. Okay. All of a sudden, I find out there's a monument on the grounds. Yep. yep. Mm -hmm. I absolutely leaped out of my chair when I read it or saw it, wherever the heck it was. And I said, God bless Wayne Sayward or Sayward. I'm not sure how to put, pronounce the name. God bless him. He put something up there and he justified what happened. He made it real. He zeroed in. He gave a beacon, an icon, that something important happened there. And yeah. for, 40, for 40 years, I've been going up there to that monument since it was built at least once a year. And I've met people from all around the world. Yep. Okay. Yeah. And we have a love for it. And I've spoken to so many people 
not only about what happened at Woodstock and my story, but about the monument itself. Mm-hmm. And right. the conversation always came up. Isn't there something missing on that monument? Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. They, I was going to ask you about this. Yeah. There's four performers, okay, yep. that performed at Woodstock. One in particular gave a, uh, Bert Somer, who gave a, a 10 a ten song set and got the only standing ovation up there. Yeah, well, he got he got the first standing ovation. All right. Well, Artie said yeah. it was the only one, and that's who Still. I was. <laughs> okay. But there could have been there could have been more. There were others. But he got but but he got a standing ovation. He was that good. Okay. He was yeah. in hair. He had he a was. he had a lead. The guy was multi talented. He sang, I think it was for uh, doing the cover on Paul Simon's America, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you hear that, if you get the opportunity to listen to that, it is just incredible. Well, anyway, so you got Quill, you got Keith Hartley Band, you got Bert Somer and Tim Harden. Right. These, These guys were left off the monument. Now, the reason that happened, in my view, is the fact that... um, there was no internet. There was no cell phone use back then. And Wayne was going off of memory and the movie. And those guys were left out of the movie for a couple of different reasons, primarily political. They weren't signed to Warner Brothers. Yeah. And no, Qu- yeah. Quill actually was. Yeah, but he had, didn't he have a problem with his manager or about some kind of payment or something? No, no Quill, Quill was only Quill was on signed to them subsequently. Okay. Yes. They were only signed subsequently, so and yeah, so they, they, they for whatever re- and they had technical problems because they were first on Saturday. So the yes. movie, the, the yes. film, and the and the audio, the the pictures and the audio didn't sync up right. So right. they left them out of the movie. Okay. And because they weren't in the movie, they lost their record deal, and then they broke up because yeah they lost everything. Now what what a travesty that. They were left off, not deliberately, but they were left off. They were so close to the brass ring. And if we're talking about the monument, we can't give Wayne Seward all the credit. We have to give some credit to Lenny, to our former guest, Lenny Binder, who put up monuments and was responsible for getting the monument there. And because they kept stealing the monuments that she put up, they commissioned Wayne Seward to make a monument that nobody could steal. Yes. And there were, and the, the thing to note is that there were seven, uh, not seven, several renditions of that monument. That monument is not the original monument. Uh, the, the first plaque was stolen. Then uh, it went through a couple of transitions with different signatures on the plaque as to who was responsible for putting it up. And so when I know it's a sacred icon to many people the way it sits now. However, I think the fact that those four people were left off is a travesty. And I talked to people for 40 years and everybody notices it. Many people notice it, not all people. So myself and and Billy Lacano decided that we were going to do something about it. Yep. You know, we're Woodstockers, okay? We're used to causes maybe way back then. And maybe 
it's time for another cause. And whether you agree with it or not, what we decided to do was redesign the monument. However, keeping it uh, with the integrity that Wayne Sayward designed it as. Mm -hmm. And what we did was we decided to, uh, through hard work and consulting with architects and artists and uh, regular people, uh, veterans over the years, came up with a design which is very similar to what's there now, except mm -hmm. that in the very center of the two plaques that list the performers, we have a smaller plaque that will add Quill, Hartley, Somers, and Harden. And we also divided that into two sections and added the four young producers who without them, it wouldn't have happened. Mm -hmm. Okay. True. So True. the four producers are under them, Kornfeld and Lang and uh, Roberts and Rosen. Right. And same font, same colors, it blends in perfectly. We had to take Wayne Sayward's name out of that center and put it down towards the base under the big plaque where an artist's signature usually goes. And before we decided to do that, we, we contacted Nina, Nina Sayward, his widow, and told her what we were attempting to do and we actually got her blessing because we explained to her that we wanted Wayne's work to be historically correct. Mm -hmm. And we wanted it to honor Wayne, who did a tremendous job. And by placing his name at the base, at the bottom, on the top, but at the bottom under the big plaque, that the first thing you would see as you walked up to that monument was his name as the yep. sculptor. And as you read up, you would see everything else. And as you read down, the last thing you see is Wayne's name. Okay. So it's a place yep. of honor rather than be up, up in the top there where it sort of gets lost in the mix. It's right where it should be in our estimation. And she agreed. Um, the thing is that um, Wayne himself, when he designed that plaque, of course, he used the iconic uh, Skolnick uh, representation of the catbird and the guitar on top. He adopted that. But on the plaque itself, the main plaque, he actually had Max Jasger's name on it when he presented it to June Jellish. Yeah. Who wanted, who wanted to donate it, who was going to pay him. And when he presented that plaque to her, she said, unless you take Max Yasger's name off it and put my name on it. You're not getting paid. Wow. And, that, and, I, and I can verify that and I can prove it. And if you want me to, I will, but not right here. No. No, that, no, no. That's no, we believe his, you, Pat. <laughs> that, that's from Wayne himself, okay? And it can be, and it can be verified. Uh, <sighs> he resented that. So what we yeah. did was we, we reimagined the design of the monument. We presented it to Eric Francis and also to Neil Hitch uh, yeah. at Bethel Woods, uh, explained what we were trying to do and how it was such a shame 
that those guys who put their heart and soul into it, like all the other performers, aren't on there, and they deserve to be there. And we made somewhat minor other modifications, like John Sebastian's name was respelled correctly instead of the way it's spelled. And we yeah. put the and we added the fourth date, 15, 16, 17, 18. Okay. Yep. Now right. I put up online both monuments, the original and the one we proposed next to each other. Most people that look at it initially can't tell the difference. But when you look close, you see the corrections that were made. So we didn't alter too much the look and we kept the integrity, but we didn't do it for Pat Colucci. We didn't do it for Billy Lacano. We didn't do it for anyone. We did it for future generations and those yes, kids sir. that are going to come decades from now and look at that monument and read it when the rest of us are gone and can't give the literal history of actually what happened. Okay. Yeah. They're going to see it and it's going to last. And some people propose, well, I'll put a separate plaque next to it. That would be wrong. That would be the wrong thing to do for Wayne because that would be admitting that w Wayne made a mistake. He should have. We don't want to do that. We want to honor Wayne. He's our hero. He's the one that got the job done. Okay, along with other people, as you mentioned. But, yeah. but we feel that that's a lasting tribute, and that's the way it should go. Well, I'll, I'll show this to the whoever it is. Well, let's talk about, yeah. what about right. this stuff. Uh, from what I've seen so far, well, they're not cleaning them often enough. Uh, that, that's clear. I mean, you know, they're kind of smelly uh, and they're, you know, getting a little piled up, but they seem to have enough of them for all the people, uh, at least around here. Uh, but there seem to be a good number for the population density around here. I really haven't checked the other areas closely. Uh, but it doesn't seem to be a major pileup of people with it. Right. It's just they're really not uh, cleaning them often enough, and that could be a health problem. What about the sanitation uh, things over here? Is well, this we pointed out to them a number of times. Uh, they know this. They know that the garbage is being heaped up, and they've really they've gone out over the loudspeaker system, and they've told the people, please put them into bags, please leave them at the side of the road, and please clear the roads so the garbage trucks can pick it up. And they've been trying to do that. You know, like we, we told them yesterday it would be a problem. We told them, you know, it's going to get worse, and that could be, a, you know, a potential disaster uh, if they let the garbage pile up. Uh, actually, we had a kid with a rat bite this morning already. Oh, yeah? Yeah. You mean there are rat bites? Well... He said it was a rat, you know. I didn't see the rats, so I don't know. But, you know, there certainly could be field rats around. And that's our show. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast, was produced and edited by Scott Parker. Your hosts were Jack Lekensky, Johnny Hudson, Aaron Shear, and Scott Parker. Keep the Dream Flowing, a Woodstock 1969 podcast is not associated in any way with Woodstock Ventures or any of its entities. Come and check us out on our Facebook page. The group is called Keep the Dream Flowing where we keep you updated on various things that we're doing and give you a heads up when there's a new episode coming. So check that out. On behalf of all of us here at Keep the Dream Flowing, this is Scott Parker saying thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>